we are studying the letter of James. And uh, we, this is our third installment in that uh, letter. Um, the, first, the first week we did an introduction and overview. Last week we talked about testing that produces. We covered the verses that said, count it all joy when you entertain and enter into various trials. Count it all joy because it's going to produce steadfastness in your life. And we were reminded that James is writing this letter to a group of Jewish Christians scattered throughout the region that were experiencing some significant troubles, persecutions, which because of their humanity had uh, uh, morphed into problems, conflicts, uh, factions. So the, the whole context of this letter is in that. But we can't see, we can't view this letter as just James writing it to those folks because everything we covered last week especially applied to us just like he was writing it to us. Uh, this is no different today. Christians, all of us Christians, too often we live in what, what we call externalism. Too often Christians try to find um, rules, we try to find laws, and we try to develop um, the do's and the don'ts. And, and then we go to Colossians where Paul writes to the church, Colossae, you know, let's do not touch, do not handle, all that stuff. But, but you got to admit that as Christians, we too often live with externals. Everything becomes an external to us. And Paul, Paul, I knew I would do that. James is writing to these people and to you and to me that there's something more than just externals. And I'll say it again before I'm done today, but if you read the Bible to find a rule, you're not going to find God. The Bible's not a rule book. I even, I don't have a problem with calling it a manual but the manual is really not the Bible, but it's the God who wrote the Bible. Now, I thank God for the scriptures. Y'all know that. I think it's the greatest gift God could have ever given us. People in New Testament times did not have the Bible like we have it today. It's a great gift. But unless you know the author, it's not going to help you very much. Except in a case like... If you're, if you're an unsaved person and you read in the Bible, you read in the Ten Commandments that do, you should not murder, and you make a decision that you're not going to murder that person that you were going to murder, it'll keep you out of the electric chair or gas chamber or prison, but it won't get you to heaven just because you decided to not murder. But when you meet the God who authored that and you get his heart and not the rule, now you got something. And this is what James is after today. We're calling today the implanted word of truth, the words that he uses. It's interesting that James goes from, in verse 18, which we'll, we'll have scripture reading in a moment, he goes from verse 18, he brought us near by the word of truth. He immediately begins with our text, be quick to hear. Now look at that and don't miss that. He brought us near, by the word, everybody say word. word. 
word of truth. And he starts this next paragraph. Now be quick to hear. That's, impor- that's an important lesson for us. He makes a methodical march through this passage and he's illuminating to us how the word of truth impacts and directs our lives. Once again, if you'll remember when we did our series on the Ten Commandments a while back, it seems like last week, but it was probably three years ago. I don't know. Uh, We pointed out that you cannot separate a person from their word. They're, they're not, they're, you can't separate them. And so when you see God's word or you hear God's word, you can't separate that word from him. They're both the same. And so he says, you, we've been born again by the word of truth. Amen. So it's not just a word in the sense of letters on paper, but it's word in the sense that these words are God himself or part of God. And, and, and he calls us in this passage beyond just hearing, but to the application of the word in our lives. Again, we're not talking about rules. We're talking about the author. And we'll cover all of that. Now, you might have noticed in the last several weeks, I, I, I am uh, needing some more air than I usually have. And so I've asked Diane Spencer to come and read our text. That's just that much more air that I can use of hers. <laughs> That's pretty close. So we're going to read James chapter 1, verse 19 through 27. If you would stand and join with the reading of the scriptures. Is that tall enough? Two? Let's see. That'll work? How about Yep, two? there we go. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Thank you. You can be seated. Oh. Thank you, Charlie. I knew God led you to this church for a reason. (laughs) Quick to hear. This is in the context in the midst of trials. I don't guess I need that up there anymore. Um, In the midst of trials, 
And in the midst of the trials these people would be going through, he says, be quick to hear. Thank God for, for birthing us. Uh, well, the last few words say, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Therefore, now knowing this, be quick to hear. And hearing is, is really where the fountain of life comes to us. One of the problems with Martha and Mary, I know people think Martha gets a bad rap. One of the problems with Martha and Mary is that Martha is busy doing things, which we should be doing things, but Mary was hearing. Now, I'm sure Martha could hear too, but there was a problem there. We got to be quick to hear. I'll tell you this, that if we're quick to hear, it'll keep us out of a lot of trouble. Because the next thing he says is be slow to speak. Quick to hear, slow to speak. Now, y'all have heard the, the axiom that says, uh, I've got two ears and one mouth, so I need to do twice as much listening as I do talking. I can tell you that if you're slow to speak, quick to hear and slow to speak, you'll have less to back up on. You'll have less to try to have to give back to somebody. Pastor Charles Green uh, in, uh, was in New Orleans, pastored in New Orleans for many, many years. Some of you will remember one year he was one of the speakers at our conference in Gatlinburg, which is coming up in May, by the way. He made this statement, don't make a per permanent mistake in a temporary land. You know how you do that? Quick to speak. You say things that as soon as they come out your mouth, you're grabbing the words to try to put them back, but you can't. Uh, my fifth grade teacher, used to, or sixth grade, one of them, she would say, put your mind in gear before you put your mouth in motion. Quick to hear, slow to speak. And again, the context is we're dealing with, with um, circumstances that are adverse. We're dealing with circumstances that are difficult. We're dealing with, with uh, people and things and life. And what are we going to do? We're going, going back to last Sunday. What are we going to do about all that except that we're going to count it as joy? so that the steadfastness can be produced in us. But not only does he say be quick to hear and slow to speak, he says be slow to anger. Truth is, if you're slow to speak, a lot of times you'll be slow to anger. If you're quick to hear, you'll be slow to speak and slow to anger. It's when we do the opposite that we get ourselves in trouble because anger, now there is a righteous anger, we all know that. Our brother Charles Simpson one time preached a sermon and said, when God gets angry and we don't, it's a sin. But we're talking about the anger that you know what I'm talking about. That anger does not produce, it is not productive. As a matter of fact, it counters productivity. Uh, it negates the steadfastness from the testing we talked about last Sunday. When we allow anger to rule us and to govern us, now, I said last Sunday, I could write a book on, on that one. I'm glad I'm not writing any chapters today, or as many chapters today. I haven't gotten mad since this morning. 
In the context of trials, be slow to anger. This is what James is saying to these folks. I know you got stuff going on. And by the way, their stuff was way worse than our stuff. I mean, when our iPhone battery goes dead, we got, woo, we got, we're in trials. We got a problem. No, they had other things to deal with. And he's saying to them, in the context of that, you need to be slow to anger. Because all of us have the propensity when we're going through a difficult time, when we don't feel good, when we haven't had enough sleep, all of us have the ability, and I hadn't done this since this morning either, to lash out, to be angry, to respond negatively to something or someone. Also, there's a context here in being slow to anger of getting along with God's people. We'll see, not today, but in coming sessions, we'll see that there was some significant negative interaction between God's people. He even uses the word murder at some point. So when he's talking about being slow to anger in the midst of our trials and in the midst of the pressure, pressure causes you to respond. And, you know, James is saying, count it joy. I told you last week about my baseball coach teaching us to know what we were going to do with the ball before it, was, it came to us. He would teach us, don't make a decision after the ball is hit of where you're going, what you're going to do with the ball. Where are you going to throw it? What are you going to do with it? He told us, you make sure you know before the pitch is made what you're going to do before that ball comes to you. And then when it comes to you, you haven't got to think about it. You pick it up, you flip it to the second baseman or wherever it is the play is. We need to be in a position to have our counted all joy cocked and ready to go. When we're faced with that pressurized moment, we don't have to decide then what we're going to do. We've already decided. Regardless of what it is, I, I'm going to count it all joy. I'm not going to be joyful about what's happening, but I'm going to count it all joy that God's going to take that and produce steadfastness in me. He says, put away, verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Put away or lay aside. Uh, the wording here, well, let me just say this first of all. To do that, if we, if, we, if we lay aside what he's describing as filthiness or rampant wickedness, we will allow the word of truth to have its complete work in our lives. If we are observing and trying to hear the word of truth from God and we've got gross sin and lawlessness in our lives, we will not be able to hear like we're supposed to. The only thing you're really going to hear in that moment, and I hope you do, and I hope I do, is the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit yes. saying, straighten yourself up, young man. Repent. In the junk, some of you know I'm reading a book by T.D. Jakes. And in it, he talks about the children of Israel. When they first came to Egypt, there were 75 of them. 
And then, of course, later on, there were so many, they were threatened. They were a threat to Pharaoh. And he talked about over those hundreds of years how that nation and the people in that nation had adopted thought patterns, practices, values of the Egyptians because they had been their slaves for all those years. And they began, they began, uh, began to adopt how the Egyptians lived. And before they knew it, they were practicing Egyptian values and morals. Now, what we have to be careful of is that living in a godless culture, that we don't do the same thing. That we live so long in a particular society or culture that we began to, even in some cases unknowingly, we began to adopt thinking that is counter God. We began to adopt, uh, our son Jason writes a, a blog called Tidbits of Audacity. I, I thought that was funny. I write kernels of truth, he writes Tidbits of Audacity. And his most recent blog deals with truth. And he said, what does the Easter Bunny and my truth have in common? <laughs> they neither one exist. You don't have a truth. God's got the truth. God is truth. And what we do as Christians in America, particularly, is we begin to adopt a thought process that the world has adopted, which says, well, the Bible doesn't really agree with my truth. Well, guess who's got to go? And, and James is writing to this group of people, and there's a reason he wrote this, saints. He didn't just decide to throw these words on parchment. There's a reason he wrote, put away your filthiness and your rampant wickedness, because there must have been some of that going on. Did I mention he's writing to Christians? This is not an evangelistic letter. He's writing to God's people who've been born again, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And yet he's saying, put away your filthiness and your rampant wickedness. The word filthiness deals with dirty garments or rags even. It deals with, with a, a garment that you have, have on that is unsightly. And he said, take that thing off. That's not you. That's not who you are. Rampant wickedness. The New American Standard Bible there says, get rid of all that remains of wickedness. Remember when Jesus spoke to the grave and he called Lazarus to come out of that grave. And he did stink, by the way. His sisters were right. He came out of the grave. And when he, was, when he came out of the grave... Jesus said to those standing by, now take those grave clothes off of him. Can I tell you that too many Christians are walking around with grave clothes today? Yeah, you're born again. Yes, you're going to heaven. Yes, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, but you don't act like it. You don't live like it. You don't behave. I say you, you know, there's three fingers pointing back all that. We're all in the same boat. We have to be careful that all that remains of wickedness is put away. 
I, I can't I can't emphasize enough that I'm not saying to you and to those people listening, wherever you're listening, we don't know which camera you're looking at, but I'm not suggesting that any of us walk out of here perfect individuals. Uh, we're humans. We got a human body. We have flesh. But I am suggesting to you that our flesh need not rule us. I am suggesting to you that sin need not govern our lives. doesn't have to. And he's, he's addressing with these folks moral depravity. You think, well, wonder what he thinks about us. This has nothing to do with what I think about you. It has something to do with the context of the, of the passage. And I just say if the conviction fits, wear it. I remember when I was in high school, I had just freshly uh, been saved, committed my life to Christ. But I still had a, I still had a little bit of a, my language wasn't all cleaned up yet. I was saved, my mouth wasn't. And, you know, I said to my friend, you know, he, we were in basketball practice one day. He said, man, you ought not be talking like that. I said, what? You show me in the Bible where it says I shouldn't be talking like that, and I won't be. Well, he didn't have a clue. But the next day he did. Because he called his pastor. Yep. He wasn't my pastor. Later on he was. He was a friend of mine. He came back to basketball practice, and we were getting ready. He said, hey, by the way, Colossians 3.8 says this. But now, set them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, oops, and foul language out of your mouth. He says, is that good enough? Well, it has to be. And so, my mouth got saved. Mostly. You can ask my wife, my sons. The point is, the wording there is put away. You, you have the ability to make the choice to put away whatever residue of worldliness you have collected along your way. I think this is one of the object lessons when Jesus is trying to wash Peter's feet is that Peter's feet were what was in contact with the earth every day. His feet were what was collecting the dust and the dirt. And I think the symbolism, although there was more to it than symbolism, but the symbolism of that moment was, I need to wash all that off of you. Of course, you know, Peter said, well, you can't do, if you want to do that, then do my whole body. No, I'm not going to, I just want to wash your feet. There's a lesson there. And so then he, he moves in, in that same verse, you say, well, we're, not, we're never going to finish. You're only halfway through 21. He says, receive the implanted word. Receive, this version says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This is the key. He didn't say, observe the rule book. He didn't say, look at the commandments on the wall. Nothing wrong with putting commandments on the wall. 
I think when we dealt with the Ten Commandments, we made that clear. But he said, receive this implanted word. And the, the fact is, again, did I tell you these folks were Christians? So they had already been implanted with the word. It's nothing new. The, uh, the New Living actually gives us, a, I think, a better picture. It says, humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts. He's saying to these folks and he's saying to you and to me, you're different. You're not different because you're perfect. You're not different just because you may behave better. I hope you do. But you're different because you have been, you have received and been implanted by and with the word of truth. It's not an external set of rules and regulations, but it's an internal motivation by the Holy Spirit. Humbly accept. It's the planting of a seed that will sprout. Remember in the sower in the soil, there was the good seed that he planted on, and it produced many-fold. J.H. Ropes was a Harvard professor, and he says it refers, this refers to what is natural as contrasted with what is taught or acquired. This is natural in the sense that it's innate. It's a part of us. It's not just something we read. It's not just something that someone explained to us. It's not just knowledge that we have acquired through some source, but it's natural in the sense that when you were born again by the Spirit of God, you received and you were implanted by the Father with his word of truth in your spirit. We'll go back to last Sunday. I quoted a lady by the name of Sophie Laws. She said that it's being implanted from the new birth. By the way, I said last week that I, I couldn't find a biography on Sophie Laws. I hadn't even left the building until Valerie Riley had given me one. She was a teacher at the University of Leeds and at King's College in London. <coughs> implanted from the new birth. It's important that we see that the implanting of the word of truth is the pivot point of this passage. It's what James, he's saying to these folks, yeah, you're going through tough times. Yeah, you're going through troubles. Yeah, I understand you got trials. And of course, last Sunday we quoted Peter, we read Peter's verse. He said, don't be surprised. We are, but he says to us, don't be surprised when you face trials. I don't think it's some strange thing happening to you. So if you're going through a tough time right now, don't think it's strange. It's pretty normal. Pretty normal. Your response is what's the key here. And he's saying to these folks, even though you're going through this stuff, remember that you have received, now humbly accept the implanted word of God. And he might be saying, humbly accept the influence and impact of that word into your life. And then he talks about hearing. We talked about that a little earlier. J.A. Motier says this. I thought it was very good. He said, it is possible to be unfailingly regular in Bible reading. Now, how many of you understand I am for Bible reading? 
well, okay, maybe I need to do a little better job if you don't understand any better than that. It is possible to be unfailingly regular in Bible reading, but to achieve no more than to have moved the bookmark forward. This is reading unrelated to an attentive spirit. In other words, the word is read but not heard. It's, it's possible for you to have daily Bible reading and never have an attentive spirit to the voice of God. How many times have I stood up here and said, Lord Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit says more than I say. I pray that we hear from the Holy Spirit more than comes out of my mouth. Because then if, if it's, that's not the case, we're just listening to a lecture at the local club. I pray that's never the case. He says here, develop a spirit that is attentive to the voice of God. Romans 10, 17, verse we quote often says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through or by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing. Well, I'd like to submit to you today that there are two basic words in the New Testament, in the Greek text, Greek language. There are two basic words for the word word quotations. First one is logos, which is just a word written down. But this word is the word rhema. Some of, many of you are familiar with that. Rhema is a word that's spoken. It's something you, you hear either in your spirit, preaching the word, you hear. And Paul, it is Paul in this case, is writing that our faith comes from hearing. And let me tell you how another way that that happens. You read the scripture and you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And he, and he uh, reveals something that you've read and you go, ooh, I never saw that before. And it becomes so real to you in that moment that you have heard the voice of the Holy Spirit and it produces faith in you. But if you just pick up the rule book and start reading it, you're not going to get any faith. You might be a spiritual egghead. People, I try to talk to people about the Lord. Well, my uncle, he could quote the Bible front and backwards. You know, you know what you want to say is, well, how much of it did he apply? How much of it was in his life? It could have been all of it. I don't know, but, you know, that goes back to that. I tell people I'm a pastor, and the first word out of their mouth is, oh, my grandma. <laughs> my grandma was a great woman. Hearing produces faith. And then receiving the word of truth into that good soil that we provide. We must have a desire for God to do his work and to have his way with us. We must have good soil that is cleared from distractions if we're going to receive that implanted, and the old King James says, engrafted word into our spirit. And he points out this ingredient that's going to be key if we're going to embrace and, re and accept this word that's been planted in our spirit, he points out this ingredient that we have to have that's called meekness. He said, receive it with meekness. Why is that so important? 
because meekness gets us out of the way. Meekness is simply, it's not weakness, by the way. I'm not going to go into that, but the metaphor that, that is used here in the Greek language is that of taming a wild horse. And once you tame a wild horse, they're still strong. They're just tame. And now that strength that they possess is under discipline. It's under control. Strength hasn't gone away. It's just been tamed. And that's what meekness is. Meekness is strength under control. R.C. Trench was the Archbishop of Ireland in the 19th century. He said, it's that temper of spirit in which we accept his dealing with us as good, and here's the key words, without disputing. I need to accept his dealings. Everybody say dealings. See, the context of James is people that have dealings in their life. And we accept those dealings and the, the benefit from those dealings without disputing with God. And when we do that, then we have created a, an, an atmosphere, we've created a spirit that is meek and can receive the benefit of the implanted word. Because if we don't have meekness, we start telling God, but God, that's not my truth. You don't know what you're talking about. We know that all of us love Jesus. A lot of people who don't even name the name of Christ would tell you they love Jesus. But a lot of people don't think he's very smart. If we thought he was smart, we would do what he says without disputing meekness. And then he talks about obeying. Hear, receive, obey. That's an interesting word to obey. or simply means the root of that word means to hear under. You see what that is? To hear under or to hear from a posture of meekness and humility. To hear without disputing. To hear without going one's own way. To hear, I know this is repetitious, you're tired of hearing it, without developing our own opinions. That's, that's to obey. It's attentive hearing. So he, go, he gets specific. He says, be doers and not hearers only. Be doers of the word and not just hearers. He said, if you're a hearer, and we're going to get to it in a moment, you're like a man looking into a mirror. Beyond hearing the word, and hearing is important, but if all we do is hear, we haven't accomplished a thing. Beyond hearing the word, we should be experiencing a transformation of life that results in service from us to God and his people. Should be a result. There should be some response to our embracing this implanted word and receiving it. And he said, if you're... Oh, it's time to quit. I thought I'd turn that off. Y'all didn't, y'all weren't supposed to hear that. Yeah, that's my music. I need to find some Ricky Skaggs music and put it there for something. He said, if you're, the, if you're just hearing the word and not doing it, you're like a man who's looking in the mirror and you look at the reality of who you are and you turn and you walk away because you don't care. I want to tell you that the content of God's character 
is contained in Scripture. You want to know who God is? Well, again, you should fellowship with him by the Spirit of God. But right here, you're going to find the content of God's character. And observe that. And then ask God to make you like him. Too many of us are asking God to become like us. We can view our own character in view of God's character. So in other words, don't compare your character and your morality to the content of the world. Don't judge your character by what you see on TV commercials, much less TV shows. But if you want to know, if you want to really see who you are, hold up the mirror of God's character and then you'll see who you really are. And you can say amen or oh me. Most of us say oh me. And I want to tell you to never determine the standard for your character by anything or anyone else other than God himself. Never. Well, it's 2022. I didn't change what's in this book. Not one iota. It doesn't change the principles because they're life principles. They're not just rules that are outdated. They're life principles that God instituted and wrote down of himself. And then he finishes up with what I call the outworking of the word of truth. And then he, gets, he starts meddling. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. Yeah, he could have went all day. When we get to chapter four, he's going to deal with that more pointedly and in more detail. So I'll give us a break today and just say, as I said earlier, that we need to be slow to speak. We need to bridle the tongue. Most of the time that I've gotten myself in trouble with anybody, my wife, my kids, anybody else, it's because I didn't bridle my tongue. I just said what was on my mind. My wife likes to say about a certain person that I'll not mention, or to a certain person that I'll not mention, you don't have to say everything. You don't have to say everything comes to your mind. You ever met somebody that does? Yeah, I have too. And he says, pure religion. Now, we don't like the word use the word, use the word religion because we think of a religious spirit. Um, and religious spirit is vile. It's evil. You've heard me say I'd rather deal with demon-possessed people than somebody with a religious spirit. It just makes me sick. I just want to, I'd a lot rather be trying to cast some demons out of somebody than to deal with a religious spirit. But he says, pure religion, that is, he said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, keeps oneself unstained. That's the outworking of godliness. I would like to submit to you that as he said, uh, orphans and widows, while we should give a large quantity of our time to taking care of these two groups of people, I don't think he was limiting pure religion to just those two groups of people. I think the point that he's trying to make is that that's an example of us getting outside of ourselves 
and helping other people. Unborn children is a great example. Getting outside of ourselves. Pure religion is understanding that you, can, you have to go beyond yourself to really find God. As long as self is in the way, he says right here, you deceive your own heart. And then the last thing he says, if you want pure religion, keep oneself unstained from the world. We've dealt with that already today. Keep yourself unstained from the world. I, I'm not calling us to, to be prudes. I'm calling us to be righteous and holy unto God and to understand what God expects of us and what he doesn't expect of us. Because, not because he's sitting there with a hammer waiting to crush us, but because he understands. Did you know God made you? I figured you knew that. Again, in T.T. Jake's book, he points out that the children of Israel, once they went in to the wilderness, wherever they were, they had a need to worship. They had a need to worship, and that's what they were built to do. And he didn't say this, but as I was reading the book, it occurred to me that the reason they had a need for worship is because God made them that way, and God made them that way that they would function like they're supposed to function if they're worshiping God. It's not, God, it's not that God has a big ego. It's not that God is some insecure child who needs people to tell him how great he is. It's that we need to be able to offer worship to someone greater, grander, more sovereign than us. It does something in us when we worship God. Surely God accepts our worship and it's good what he produces in us when we go beyond ourselves to worship him. The same thing happens here. We keep ourselves unstained from the world, not because he doesn't want us to have any fun. It's that he understands what real fun is. And he understands that sin brings pleasure for a little while, but at the end of the day, it produces destruction in our lives. And James is writing to these folks, hey, you're making a mistake if you allow these problems to cause this, uh, these factions and conflicts. All of this, this whole passage, is seen in light of the troubles, the conflicts, and the trials that are experienced not only by the readers of this letter, but by you and me and all Christian people who study and read the truth of the scripture in the letter of James. Can you say amen? amen. Stand with me. Lord Jesus, I will say it once again. I pray that you have said more by your Holy Spirit than I have said. I pray that we have heard more through your Spirit than I have said, but I also pray that what I have said has been anointed by you and that these words have landed where you, where you uh, planned on them landing. I pray that they have found their target that you purposed. As we observe this letter and we observe these 12 groups of, of Jewish Christians and the, the things they were going through, uh, may we take it into ourselves and embrace the truth for ourselves and not just observe their problems from a distance. 
And as we count it all joy, when we enter into and entertain diverse and various trials as we do that, Lord God, we choose to receive, to embrace, to accept the implanted word that you've put in each one of us and what it does in our life. Allow it to draw us closer to you as our Lord and Savior, our God. Lord God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for what your Holy Spirit has done in people's lives in these moments and what you will continue to do knowing that you don't just work in this building. As we go out of here, help us to export what you have imported into us. I thank you in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Don't forget next Sunday to bring a bunch of food. I'm hungry. <laughs>